Hello, and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. And on that note, a couple people this past week have actually added a couple five-star reviews on iTunes without writing an actual review, which is totally fine as well. Definitely welcome that. So if you did that, thank you very much for doing so, because uh, it doesn't show your name. But hey, thanks anyway. Now, first up, I have to note that the next episode of this podcast will be a mega episode covering Backlash, as well as the following night's episode of Raw. And so, as is the custom, I will be bringing in a very special guest to help me break it all down. And that special guest will be none other than Sal from the WrestleMania Salvation Podcast on the Rundown Wrestling Network. Sal last joined the show for episode number 58, where we talked about the Royal Rumble as well as Monday Night Raw, and I'm looking forward to having him back on the show. He always does an awesome job, so be on the lookout for episode number 71 in your podcast feeds sometime in the coming weeks. Alright, so with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw, the go-home episode of Raw before this Sunday's Backlash pay-per-view. It is Monday, April 19th, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from an unnamed arena in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I think it's Van Andel Arena, but they never actually say, so I'm just going to go ahead and assume that that's the one, because really, how many arenas can there be in friggin' Grand Rapids? Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include three episodes of Nitro, 10 episodes of SmackDown, and 9 episodes of Raw, including one from just a few months ago back here in the present day in February of 2019. Sadly, no pay-per-views yet, though, but maybe someday, Grand Rapids. Maybe someday. We open the show with highlights from the past few weeks, focusing on Stone Cold Steve Austin's quest to get his smoking skull belt back. In case you need a reminder, Vince McMahon, who is currently preoccupied with The Undertaker attempting to ruin his life, told his son Shane to just give the belt back to Austin. But, well, Shane didn't listen, and instead he gave the belt to The Rock. And last week, The Rock asked Stone Cold to meet him on a bridge in Detroit if he wanted to get his belt back, and when Austin showed up, Rock threw both the belt and Stone Cold off the bridge. So that brings us up to tonight. And after those highlights conclude, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include I hate Shane, China needs clothes, my grandpa is WCW champ, Deborah 316 says my implants are leaking, stop the Undertaker angle, and listen Deborah, enough is enough, and it's time to get laid, which actually kind of sounds like a threat. 
And I should note that when they show the pyro landing near the Titantron, we can see that the ramp is completely flat with no incline whatsoever. You may recall that the last time that happened was four weeks ago, when Stone Cold drove the beer truck into the arena. However, the vehicle this week is not a beer truck, but rather a hearse. And I know that you would probably expect The Undertaker to be involved in that type of scenario, but instead, we can see that the man driving it is none other than The Rock. He parks the hearse near the ring, and when he exits, we can see that he's wearing a gray suit with a gold necklace and no shirt on underneath. And yet, somehow, The Rock manages to pull this off and still look damn good doing it. I suppose that's why he's currently conquering Hollywood. We then get a shot of the area off to the side of the stage where there is an open grave with a bunch of dirt next to it, several bouquets of flowers, a casket, and a picture of Stone Cold Steve Austin because clearly he is now deceased after having been thrown off that bridge last week. Because of that open grave, it basically looks like they're preparing to have a buried alive match tonight, but thankfully that's not in the cards. So Rock enters the ring and grabs a microphone, so let's listen to what he has to say. Stone Cold Steve Austin, last week on Raw, The Rock took your little title, he threw it over the bridge, along with your career, and he took your candy ass and threw you so damn far over that bridge, you ain't never coming back. So The Rock buried your title. The Rock buried your career. So tonight, what is going to happen is The Rock is going to bury your dead monkey ass. What? We're going to have a funeral here tonight. That's right, Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's going to be an old-fashioned funeral. With The Rock delivering the damn eulogy. Now what we have over here is we have a little casket for your dead monkey ass. We got your little flower. They're crowd chanting for the rattlesnake. Forget it. Supposed to be quiet at a funeral. It's a summer occasion. Stone Cold Steve Austin, just in case you didn't understand what is going to happen tonight, is there will be a funeral, and you will be buried at the bottom of the rock's feet where you belong six feet under. And it will almost feel as good as when the rock took your piece of trailer park trash body threw it over the bridge, and he heard the splash. And as far as for the rock knows, is you could have drowned. But the fact of the matter is this, is that the rock couldn't get three drops of monkey about it. Rock means business, JR. Well, you're right about that.
You can chant Austin all you want. Fact of the matter is this. This Sunday on pay-per-view backlash, when The Rock whoops your candy ass and he walks out the WWF champ, you'll realize exactly why. The Rock is, without a shadow of a doubt, the best damn WWF champ ever was. Well, The Rock has just guaranteed that he's going to bury Stone Cold Steve Austin right here tonight on Raw. The Rock threw Austin off a bridge last week, for goodness sakes. And now this week, The Rock says he's going to bury Austin. And he's got a grave, JR. He's dug a grave. At great expense, I might add. Will Will Austin be buried six feet deep right here tonight? Well, there you have it. Tonight, The Rock will be presiding over the funeral of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Unless, of course, The Undertaker and Paul Bear interrupt first and sue him for gimmick infringement, which is always a possibility. Although I can't help but wonder, why does The Rock keep saying that he's going to bury Stone Cold? I mean, he left him in the river last week, so it's not like he has his body. I guess maybe it's a purely symbolic gesture, or maybe I'm just reading way too much into this. Well, either way, it should be a fun night. So after a commercial break, we go back inside the arena where it is time for our first match of the evening, the road dog Jesse James versus Owen Hart, who is accompanied by Deborah. A quick note on Owen here, just two days before this episode of Raw aired, the WWF held a sold-out house show at the Saddle Dome in Calgary, and as you might expect, Owen was basically greeted as a god by his hometown fans. Pretty cool that he got to have such a nice moment there considering, well, what's coming soon. And on that note, let me just point out the fact that when Owen walks to the ring for his match, he has to walk right past an open grave. I was not expecting that visual, and let's just say that it was uncomfortable, to say the least. But let's not dwell on the creepiness for too long, because the road dog has a microphone, and he's about to unintentionally create a euphemism which will exist in the WWF for years to come. I promise I'll make it short and sweet. We have a dilemma. You think your tag team, as I call them, Canadian country, are the number one contenders. Well, these people, Mr. A-double crooked letter and the D-O-double-G, see things a little differently. But we can settle it right here. Owen Hart, you nugget. You beat the D-O-double-G tonight, and there will be no contest. Your tag team will be the number one contenders for the WWF tag team titles. However, what? What? if I whip your ass, then me and everybody in this building and everybody around the world, since I'm the D-O-double-G, we want to see her puppies. Yes, that's right. This is the first ever instance of someone referring to a woman's breasts as puppies. Spoiler alert, this will happen many more times in the Attitude Era, mainly thanks to the continued efforts of a certain commentator, and it will also provide us with many We Want Puppies chants from the fans in the future. Yay! 
But as for tonight, you heard Road Dog's proposition. If Owen Hart wins, then Jeff Jarrett and Owen will become the number one contenders for the tag team titles. But if Road Dog wins, well, apparently Deborah will have to show off her puppies. And as you heard in that clip, the bell has rung, so it appears as though these stipulations are indeed official. We have us the first ever number one contendership versus breasts match. Truly prestigious. And during the ebb and flow of this match, we get to hear an example of what Jerry Lawler's commentary will be like for almost every women's match for roughly the next 10 years. Here's a quick compilation of audio clips, which are, again, taken just from this match alone. You never had ridden with the road dog before, have you? I didn't know you were such a dog lover. Are you kidding? I saw all those Benji movies. Oh, and oh. burning atomic drop. Owen Hart is in deep trouble here. Look out. And oh, oh, no. Spinning heel kick. Nice move by Owen Hart. I got a pocket full of puppy chow right now. Come on. Able to dog. kick out there. Don't you want to see puppies? 101 Dalmatians was my favorite movie. Will you get off the dog stuff? Puppies. <laughs> hey, what? There's a lot more. Important things and puppies at stake here. What? It was well placed elbow again. Owen Hart ah. with the advantage, and uh, referee Teddy Long got a two and a half count there. What's more important than her puppies? Well, to you, probably not nothing in the world. Right. The tag team titles are kind of in the background here, you know. Road Dog, look out here. Yes. He's, Good. He scores. It. it could be over. Yeah. Surely, that will never get old. So moving on, I kind of spoiled the finish a bit in that audio clip there, but basically what happened was that Owen attempted to pick up Road Dog for a slam, but the D-O-double-G escaped, kicked Owen in the stomach, and then hit him with the pump handle slam, thankfully not pretending to bang him up the ass in the process this time. Referee Teddy Long made the count, and that was enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match... The road dog, Jesse James, and, according to the stipulation, Deborah will now need to, uh, show off her puppies, apparently. And interestingly enough, it appears that Deborah didn't mind holding up her end of the bargain because she did indeed begin to unbutton her suit coat, but once she started doing that, Jeff Jarrett ran out from backstage and forced her to cover up, drawing massive boos from the crowd, as you would probably expect. So no, we don't get to see any nudity from Deborah, but at least now, the puppies era has finally arrived, and we can all be, uh, thankful for that? Sure. So after that segment concludes, we cut backstage where The Undertaker is talking to Farouk and Bradshaw, who he refers to as, quote, my personal instruments of destruction. He tells them that the brood must be taken out as soon as possible, because the Ministry has bigger plans to worry about tonight, and so the Acolytes head off. In case you need a quick reminder, last week on Raw, The Undertaker ordered Gangrel and Edge to strap Christian to one of his symbols as punishment for Christian screwing up lately, but Gangrel and Edge refused to do it, and the brood then started brawling with the other Ministry members. And on that note, after a commercial break, we go back into the arena, where it is now time for our next match... The Acolytes versus Gangrel and Edge, who are accompanied by Christian. 
And surprisingly, they actually let these guys go for about five and a half minutes, much longer than I was expecting for two lower-tier tag teams. For the majority of the match, Gangrel was playing the Vampire in Peril until he finally made the hot tag to Edge. And usually, when a guy gets the hot tag, he starts cleaning house, but instead, Bradshaw pretty much just kills Edge with a clothesline right away. So much for that. The Acolytes then hit Edge with a brutal-looking spike powerbomb because their whole mission in life is to stiff the shit out of people without ever getting over in the process. And it looked like that was going to be the end for Edge, but then... Christian jumped up on the ring apron, so Farouk exited the ring and went after him. That distracted referee Mike Kyoto, who also exited the ring and tried to separate them. Meanwhile, as that was going on, Ken Shamrock ran out from backstage with a baseball bat. He hit Bradshaw in the stomach with it and then once in the head for good measure, but, I mean, obviously, Shamrock didn't actually hit him in the head. I'm pretty sure he missed by quite a bit, but that didn't stop the WWF from going back and adding a smacking sound effect anyway. Very strange. The camera then stayed on Shamrock as he left the ring and started yelling at people at ringside, including JR and Lawler, and while that was going on, they completely missed Edge pinning Bradshaw back in the ring. We could hear the count going on in the background, but the entire focus was on Shamrock, so we didn't actually see the pinfall at all. Crazy antics going on with wrestling being the secondary focus? Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Attitude Era in a nutshell. And as soon as the match ends, we immediately cut backstage, where Paul Bear is trying to console an angry Undertaker by telling him that the loss wasn't the Acolyte's fault, it was due to Shamrock's actions. Taker, however, informs Bearer that he doesn't have time for failure, and really, if that's the case, then why does Midian still have a spot in the ministry? I mean, let's use some common sense here, my man. That dude does nothing but fail. And from there, we cut to another commercial break, which includes an ad for an upcoming WWF special. Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Big Show, and The Rock in an all-new primetime network special, WWF SmackDown. That's right, coming soon, the WWF will be in prime time for a one-off television special called SmackDown. And yes, as I mentioned before, it will be covered in a bonus episode on this podcast, and I do indeed have a special guest lined up for it, so be sure to stay tuned for that. And when we return from commercials, we see footage from During the Break, where The Undertaker confronted the Acolytes backstage. They blamed Ken Shamrock for their loss, but Taker told them that it was unacceptable and Viscera then jumped Farouk from behind. The Undertaker then started beating on Bradshaw, and both men proceeded to leave the Acolytes laying on the ground, so clearly, Taker is none too pleased with the Ministry of Darkness these days. From there, we cut back into the arena for our next match, and it is for the WWF Intercontinental Title, Champion The Godfather, accompanied by four of his hoes, versus WWF Hardcore Champion Hardcore Holly. And for the record, no, the Hardcore title is not on the line in this match. Only Godfather's newly won Intercontinental title is on the line, in case you were wondering. Also, this is not a Hardcore match either, which Holly learned the hard way early on. He rolled out to the floor and grabbed a cookie sheet from under the ring, but referee Jimmy Corderas quickly snatched it away from him and informed him that he couldn't use it. And then, shortly after that, this match proceeded to turn into overbooked lunacy. So the Godfather picked up Holly for a scoop slam, but when he did that, Holly's foot accidentally kicked Corderas in the face, knocking him to the ground and leaving us without a referee. Holly then proceeded to go right back out of the ring and grab the cookie sheet, and he then leveled Godfather with it several times. 
He also grabbed a broom and broke that over his back for good measure. Holly then grabbed a chair and walked toward the Godfather with it, but the pimp master kicked the chair right back into Holly's face. Corderas recovered and started counting, but then... Goldust emerged from backstage and pulled Godfather out of the ring before he could get the pinfall. And then, Corderas apparently went back to being half-conscious because he completely missed the fact that Goldust whipped Godfather into the ring post, which should have resulted in a disqualification. And to make things even more convoluted, Al Snow then snuck into the ring and smacked Holly in the face with head. And yet, to make it even more nonsensical, Goldust, who was just beating up the Godfather, rolled him back into the ring, where he then proceeded to pin Holly and get the one, the two, and the three. So, so just to recap that, Goldust previously pulled Godfather out of the ring so he wouldn't win via pinfall, but then, mere seconds later, he tosses him back into the ring so that he would win via pinfall. I mean, that's just one of those moments where if you think about it for too long, one of your eyes begins to twitch and everything just starts to smell like burnt toast. So just try not to spend too much time on that one. Anyway, the point is, your winner and still WWF Intercontinental Champion, The Godfather. And from there, we cut backstage where, hilariously, The Undertaker is talking on a sweet 1999 cell phone, complete with the little antenna sticking up. He asks Midian if everything is in place, and he tells him that he better not fail him, or else he will have to answer to the Lord of Darkness. Yes, that's right, the self-professed Lord of Darkness conducts his evil business on a Motorola flip phone. Nice job maintaining that mystique. And after a commercial break, we go backstage where a woman is shining the rock shoes for some reason. She asks what's going to happen when Stone Cold Steve Austin shows up tonight, and Rock says he's just going to bury him tonight, but he'll beat his ass at Backlash. So apparently Rock is fully expecting Austin to show up tonight, even though he chucked him off a bridge into a river last week. So, okay then, great, I'm glad we got that cleared up. And from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, Ken Shamrock, thankfully without his baseball bat this time, versus the Big Boss Man in a no-holds-barred match. Yes, that's right, former tag team champions going head-to-head. In case you need a reminder, last week when Shane McMahon took over control of the corporation from his father, Shamrock stayed loyal to Vince, while everyone else, including the boss man, opted to stay in the corporation under Shane's leadership. And at the end of the night, after the ministry put a beating on Shamrock, corporation members Triple H and the boss man also came down to ringside and got some shots in on him, so that brings us to this match. And before we even begin, as the boss man is entering, Shamrock runs down the aisle to meet him and starts beating the crap out of him, culminating with him throwing boss man into the steel stairs on two separate occasions. Eventually, though, he rolls boss man into the ring, and the bell rings, so we are officially underway. And remember how I said they build this one as a no-holds-barred match? Well, the match takes place entirely inside the ring, with no illegal holds being used whatsoever. I think that may be a first. You play it up as though you're going to see a crazy match with all sorts of illegality, and it turns out to be a completely conventional wrestling match. Bizarre. So basically, the boss man is controlling the match the entire time, until Shamrock finally reverses the momentum by nailing him with a Hurricane Rana out of nowhere, and in fact, let's pick it up right from that point. It's Shamrock, belly to belly. That could be it. Shamrock from the left hook. He got it. 
sisters in it. Because I do. And you know, Kenny, I would expect more of you. Leave your sister in some rundown hotel outside of Lansing on Interstate 96. What? Yes, yeah, Shamrock. I know everything. Well, I even know what room she's in. So maybe I'll start knocking on room two. Twenty-three. <laughs> the Undertaker's gone too far. Stop being man, Ryan Shamrock. This is too much. So, as you heard there, as soon as Shamrock gets the win over the Boss Man, surprisingly with a belly-to-belly suplex and not the ankle lock, the lights in the arena literally go out roughly a second later, and we then see the Undertaker on the Titan Tron. He tells Shamrock that he knows the exact hotel and room where Kenny has put his sister Ryan, and that causes Shamrock to sprint out of the ring as we go to commercial. Man, poor Ken Shamrock, huh? Not only does he have the corporation to worry about, but The Undertaker and what's left of the Ministry are also still messing with him. I mean, that's like half the goddamn roster right there. It's a lot of enemies for poor Kenny. And so, after the break, we go back into the arena where Rodney and Pete Gass from the Mean Street Posse are now joining the commentary team. If you recall last week on Raw, Shane McMahon told the Posse to go find Mankind in the boiler room and kick his ass, and predictably, Mankind ended up being the one who kicked their asses instead. And so, Jerry Lawler asked the Posse about that, and Pete Gass tells us that Foley was able to get the better of them because he jumped them from behind. But then... Pete ends up using some rather unfortunate phrasing. Quote, Be a man, come to us in the face. Hashtag Val Venus. And then Jim Ross piles on with the botching because he then segues into hyping the Mankind Big Show Boiler Room Brawl Mash at Backlash, but instead he calls it a Brawl for All match. Not gonna lie, I would have liked to have seen that, but I'm afraid our Brawl for All days are sadly over. But anyway, speaking of Mick Foley, we then kick into our next match, Mankind versus Triple H, who is accompanied by China. Yes, that's right, Mankind versus Triple H, with no build-up, right in the middle of an episode of Raw. Spoiler alert, it'll be a different case right around the time the new year is rolling around. Also, in case you had any doubt that Triple H was now a heel, as he's walking to the ring, he takes a sip from his water bottle and spits it at some fans seated near the aisle. Gross. And early on in the match, we got a very strange spot. From outside the ring, China motioned for Mankind to come over toward her, and so he did. And then China just nailed him with a forearm to the face. I couldn't help but wonder, what exactly did Mick Foley expect was going to happen there? Did he think China was calling over to tell him a secret or something? Although granted, Mick has probably suffered about six dozen concussions by this point, so I guess I'll give him a pass on that one. And for a change of pace, this match actually ends up getting about seven minutes of ring time, which is pretty high for a middle-of-the-show match on Raw in the Attitude Era. And as you might expect, Triple H is pretty much in control for the entirety of the match, with several assists from China. However, the momentum changes when Hunter goes for a pedigree, but Foley takes him down and attempts to slingshot him into the corner. Instead, however, Hunter kicks Foley away, which then leads to that oh-so-humorous spot where Mankind's back hits the turnbuckle, and then he falls face down right into Triple H's crotch. A true comedy classic. From there, Foley then reaches into his tights to pull out Mr. Sacco, but when he does that, China simply grabs his feet, takes him down to the mat, and pulls him crotch-first into the turnpost. And since all of that was done in full view of referee Mike Chioda, that, of course, results in 
a disqualification. Your winner of the match, Mankind. But then, as soon as the match ends, Rodney and Pete Gass get up from their commentary position and start beating on Foley, followed soon thereafter by Test and the Big Boss Man coming to the ring as well. The corporation then proceeds to start beating on Mankind, but it turns out that he may have some unlikely backup. the sentiment thank you very much but in six days we still have a date with destiny in my boiler room I'll see you there have a nice day alright so with Triple H about to pedigree mankind face first onto a steel chair the Big Show came out from backstage, causing all the corporation members to focus their attention on him instead. It looked like the corporation was going to mount an offensive against him, but then Triple H just shoved Test right over to Show, who then hit him with a very impressive delayed choke slam. And if you recall last week on Raw, Triple H pretty much did the exact same thing when he rolled Test into the ring during their tag match, and he was then tombstoned by Kane. I'm getting the impression that Hunter is not a big fan of Test. So yes, after Tess took the choke slam, the rest of the corporation members ran away and headed backstage, leaving Show and Mankind alone in the ring. And as you heard in that clip, Foley appreciated the Big Show coming to his aid, but they still have a score to settle this Sunday in the Boiler Room Brawl. So essentially, the way they hype up this match on the Go Home Show Before Backlash is Mankind and the Big Show basically are getting along. Sure smells like money to me. I swear, Vince Russo's booking really does just leave me speechless sometimes. But anyway, from there, we then cut to the parking lot, where The Rock is on a cell phone talking to someone as he stands right next to a brand new car. Yes, apparently while The Rock was in Grand Rapids, he took the opportunity to buy himself a brand new vehicle and somehow customize it with a Florida license plate that says, The Rock. Also, does that mean that Rock is planning on driving that car all the way back to Miami? Because that would be a 
21-hour drive. Hopefully he packs a lot of snacks. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next match, Badass Billy Gunn versus Jeff Jarrett, who was accompanied by Deborah. Honestly, I kind of feel like these guys should be friends. One of them used to be a cowboy, and the other used to be a country singer. I mean, that's pretty much a perfect pair right there. And before the match begins, Billy grabs a mic and says that Double J deprived the people of seeing Deborah's puppies earlier, but, quote, Let me assure you, when I beat you right here tonight, Deborah, you're showing us some TNA. And honestly, that really does sound kind of threatening. How exactly is Billy going to live up to that promise exactly? Is he just going to rip off all of Deborah's clothes himself? Because that seems not okay. And early on in the match, Owen Hart comes down to ringside, and he immediately trips up Billy Gunn behind referee Earl Hebner's back. Jarrett then clotheslines Billy out of the ring and distracts Hebner once again, which allows Owen to start getting in some more shots on Billy on the arena floor. And as you might expect... This then brings out the road dog, Jesse James, from backstage, who chases Owen away. And on a completely random note, when Earl Hebner is trying to maintain order in the match, for some reason, Jerry Lawler randomly refers to him as, quote, Sex takes a holiday, Hebner! So, uh, because Earl was trying to do his job, the king takes a jab at him for not being able to get laid? Not sure what the connection is there, but okay then. So anyway, continuing on in the match, Billy hit Jarrett with a neckbreaker, and he was about to pin him, but then Deborah got up on the ring apron and attempted to distract Mr. Ass by unbuttoning her blouse. Instead, however, Billy turned around and mooned her. He then nailed Jarrett with a famasser and went to pin him, but Owen Hart ran into the ring and broke up the pin before that could happen, resulting in a disqualification victory for Mr. Ass. Jared and Owen then tossed Billy out of the ring and started putting the boots to Road Dog, but the crowd was not exactly focusing on that because, while that was going on, Deborah had now fully removed her blouse and was standing in the ring in her bra. She then motioned to the crowd as though she was going to take the bra off, but before she could, Jarrett exited the ring, grabbed his guitar, and put it over Deborah's chest to cover her up. Jarrett, Owen, and Deborah then headed backstage as the Outlaws celebrated in the ring, and these two teams will once again go head-to-head this Sunday at Backlash. Oh, and in case you were wondering, yes, Jerry Lawler once again made many references to puppies, so get used to it, folks. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena for our last match of the night, the Big Show versus Ministry of Darkness member Viscera. Yes, that's right. The Big Show versus Viscera is technically your main event of the evening, although granted there's still a lot more non-wrestling to come. And as you could probably expect, this one was not much of a technical masterpiece, since Viscera is completely useless from an in-ring perspective around this time. Although at one point, Big Show actually does manage to give Viscera, of all things, a hip toss, and Viscera does indeed get somewhat off his feet for it, so good for him, I guess. Big Show then boots Viscera in the face and knocks him down to the ground again, and from there, he signals for the choke slam, but the lights go out. And yes, The Undertaker and Paul Bearer then walk to the ring to provide some backup for Viscera. Taker enters the ring and stares down the Big Show, and they proceed to brawl with each other until Viscera intervenes to make it a two-on-one beatdown. But then, with the two Ministry members working over the Big Show, Mankind emerges from backstage to help even the odds. 
The Undertaker, however, seemingly does not want to bother anymore, so he just exits the ring and heads backstage while Big Show and Mankind work over Viscera, culminating with another Big Show boot to Viss's face. Yes, it appears that Foley felt the need to return the favor after Big Show bailed him out earlier, so once again, these two are apparently getting along quite well, despite the fact that they're fighting each other at Backlash on Sunday. Uh Uh-huh. Meanwhile, I can't help but wonder, how many goddamn feuds does The Undertaker need at this point? He's been taunting Vince and Stephanie for weeks, he's playing mind games with Ken Shamrock and Ryan Shamrock, he fought with The Brood last week, he's beating up his remaining Ministry of Darkness members tonight, and now he's getting in The Big Show's face. I mean, Jesus Christ, dude, you really need to learn how to prioritize. By the way, fun fact here, when The Undertaker comes out from backstage and the match essentially ends, the timestamp for this episode on the WWE Network is right around an hour and eight minutes. The total length of this episode of Raw is 1 hour, 35 minutes, and 17 seconds, so if you're scoring at home, that means we have more than 27 minutes left in the show, and none of it is wrestling. It's actually pretty comical if you look at the little timestamp dots at the bottom of the screen when you watch this on the network, because there are literally no dots for the final third of the show. Again, I say, the Attitude Era, in a nutshell. And after commercial break, we get a quick recap of last week's confrontation between Vince McMahon and his son Shane. In case you need a reminder, Shane fired Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe, and then, to put a shocking capper on the segment, he took over control of the corporation from his father and proceeded to slap Vince in the face. This then segues into WWF Studios, where we are, quote-unquote, live, except for the fact that this episode of Raw has been taped six days in advance, so I guess it's live on a 144-hour delay. Anyway, Michael Cole was conducting the interview, and his guests are Vince and Stephanie McMahon. It's still kind of funny to see a young Stephanie, by the way. Her voice sounds completely different, and she has little barrettes in her hair. It's a far cry from the Stephanie of today, that's for sure. So anyway, the interview is pretty uneventful at the beginning. Essentially, Vince says that he has always been proud of Shane until last week. And Stephanie says that the only person she's been able to trust recently has been her father. But then, things take a bit of a turn. The one person who's really stood by my side has been my father. And, and he's made sure that I've been protected. And, uh, and I feel very safe. And I just hope that soon this can all come to an end and, and my family will be... Me, we have a problem also. You stay here! You stay here with Stephanie! You take me to him! Take me to the son of a bitch! Take me to him! Come on! Go! 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 Where is the son of a bitch? Where is he? Where is he? God, where is he? What's going on, King? I don't know. Something's happening at the studio. You son of a bitch! You son of a bitch! You got some of this! Who is that? That's Midian! Midian! The Undertaker's Midian! He's at the he's at the TV facility! And look at this! It's an assaulting Midian here! Your ass! Your ass! Somebody help me! Somebody help 
So as you heard there, while Stephanie was speaking, one of Vince's security guards interrupted and said that there was a situation outside. And then Vince, doing some very subtle, understated acting, proceeded to yell the word go about 800 times and run outside the building. I think he also attempted to set the world record for uttering the phrase son of a bitch on network television as he manages to say it a whopping eight times in the span of less than a minute. Truly impressive. So we then cut to the parking lot where, yes, Midian had just arrived. And as if Midian needed to look like even more of a jobber, he easily gets his ass kicked by a 53-year-old man. Vince concludes his beatdown by kicking Midian in the balls, which knocks him down to the ground. And then, Vince jumps into Midian's car and puts it in reverse, essentially trying to murder him. The car smashes into the side of the building, but Midian is able to move out of the way before it hits him, and by the way, it actually is Vince driving the car, because we watch him get into it and back it up, so yes, Vince McMahon is now doing some stunt driving, which requires him to crash a car into a brick wall. I hope he didn't get whiplash from that. But anyway, after Midian moves out of the way, he opens the car door and throws Vince down to the ground. Midian then jumps into the driver's seat and peels off, but yet again, it appears that a member of the Ministry of Darkness has failed the Undertaker. Not exactly making the faction look strong, to say the least. And surely all these Ministry members are going to have to suffer the wrath of the Undertaker since he warned all of them not to fail him, right? Right? Well... No, actually, they completely drop this angle entirely once Backlash rolls around, and they're all back to being on The Undertaker's good side. Hashtag Vince Russo booking. Pretty amazing. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena, where Val Venus is heading to the ring, once again rocking a purple towel instead of his usual white one. And his promo is actually quite of the time, because he tells us that he's solved the Y2K problem, he can just add some extra megabytes of RAM from his hard drive. I'm sad to say that I actually chuckled at the 1999-ness of that one. But then, no sooner does he say that than we get an interruption from, of all people, your WWF Women's Champion, Sable. She says that Val will have to wait because she has an important announcement. In just two short weeks, she'll be shooting her second edition of Playboy. I don't know what the turnaround time is for those Playboy pictorials, but that seems awfully soon, since her first issue literally just came out. Granted, though, it was a huge seller, so I'm sure Hugh Hefner wanted to churn out another one as quickly as possible. Also, just like we were introduced to the term puppies earlier tonight, Sable also makes a bit of history because she refers to herself as, quote, the diva of the World Wrestling Federation. And yes, I'm pretty sure this is the first time where one of the women was referred to as a diva, and in fact, this moment is actually cited on the Women in WWE Wikipedia page, so once again, a bit of history is being made on this episode of Raw. However, Sable is soon interrupted by Ivory and Dila Brown, and Ivory immediately goes after the women's champion. Val tries to separate the two women, but Dilo then goes after him, and both of them brawl to the arena floor. So with Ivory taking it to Sable, we then get an appearance from Nicole Bass. She enters the ring and proceeds to pick up Ivory, and then she hits her with, well, a pretty shitty-looking chokeslam, to be honest. Nicole Bass is quite clearly not a wrestler, but hey, she's been on the Howard Stern show a lot, so that's good enough for Vince Russo. D'Lo then carries Ivory back to the locker room as Val Venus sticks around to get a good long look at Sable. 
I'm actually kind of surprised that it took this long for Sable and Val Venus to cross paths, but I suppose we'll see if anything else comes from that. And then, after one final commercial break, The Rock enters from backstage, still wearing his gray suit. He starts walking to the ring, but amusingly, before he gets there, he takes a moment to sniff one of the roses near the gravesite, and he then places it on top of a casket. He also takes the picture of Stone Cold, which has been set up next to the flower wreath, and proceeds to bring it to the ring with him. We can also see that Rock has note cards with him, because he has prepared a eulogy. And as you might expect, the eulogy mocks Stone Cold quite a bit, but then, because Austin has not yet arrived, Rock decides that he's going to bury something else instead. And with that in mind, he unbuttons his suit coat to reveal that he's wearing the Smoking Skull title belt. So I guess we can assume that he had someone fish it out of the water last week after he chucked it into the river? Now that is dedication. So yes, Rock claims that he's going to bury the Smoking Skull belt at his custom gravesite, but then we proceed to get an interruption on the Titantron, and I'm going to go ahead and play the rest of the segment for you here, since it's a pretty classic moment. But uh, be warned, there is quite a bit of revving noise in this clip. Austin, you better smell what The Rock is cooking, because at Backlash, the Brahma Bull is going to come out snorting. At Backlash, the Brahma Bull is going to come out spitting. And at Backlash, the Brahma Bull is going to take his horns and spear them right in your candy ass. Well, you got it to do there, challenger. Remember that. You're the challenger this Sunday at Backlash. He's The Rock. Well, Look at that devil.
God, he's leaving. Thank God. Get him oh, out of here. He's sure about him leaving. He needs to be arrested. So, yes, as you heard there, Stone Cold Steve Austin did eventually show up in the parking lot driving, of all things, a custom monster truck with his name all over it. And after a valet confirmed to him that The Rock's car was parked nearby, Stone Cold proceeded to take Rocky's brand new Lincoln Continental and park it in a new spot. He then hopped back into his monster truck, and yes, he crushed The Rock's Lincoln with his monster truck, not once, but twice. From there, he actually drove the monster truck into the arena, and for good measure, he then crushed the hearse that The Rock drove in at the top of the show. And finally, Rock ran up the aisle to go after Stone Cold, but Austin then proceeded to beat Rock's ass all around the stage area, whipping him into barricades and guardrails. And after beating Rock's ass for a while, Stone Cold then dragged him up near the gravesite, took back his smoking skull belt, smacked Rock in the face with it, and that knocked the people's champion right into the open grave. The triumphant Austin then grabbed a cooler, pulled out some beers, and started chugging them, and he held the belt high up for all the fans to see. 
It certainly seemed like a nice moment to end the show on, but then, out of nowhere, Shane McMahon snuck up on Stone Cold from behind and absolutely leveled him in the back with a shovel knocking Austin down to the ground. Shane then grabbed the smoking skull belt for himself and held it up as we went off the air. As a reminder, when Stone Cold faces The Rock at Backlash, Shane McMahon will be the special guest referee, so it certainly looks as though the deck is stacked against Austin in a big way. As for this final segment, I probably don't need to tell you that this is an absolutely classic ending to Raw, with not one, but two vehicles being destroyed, and Stone Cold finally getting his hands on Rock, after the Great One had been getting the better of him on pretty much every episode of Raw since WrestleMania. But I really do have to give a lot of credit to that one final spot where Shane hits Austin with the shovel, because I'm sure the fans weren't expecting it. Stone Cold had just beaten Rock's ass, he got his belt back, he was drinking his beers, they were playing his music, but then Shane just completely ruins the fun with a weaselly sneak attack. Awesome stuff there, and also a great way to show how much the odds are stacked against Stone Cold heading into Backlash. So a big thumbs up for the conclusion there, but we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seas back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause yeah. I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw beat Nitro in the ratings with a massive 6.25 to Nitro's still respectable 4.36. This week, both shows actually declined slightly, but Raw still handily won 6.11 to 4.08. And not to belabor the point, but anytime you top a 6.0 rating on cable at this point in time, it's pretty goddamn massive. But the good news for Nitro is that this episode was, by most accounts, a very good show. There was a ton of great in-ring action, so let's break down what you could have been watching over on the TNT network. Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko defeated Scott Armstrong and Steve Armstrong. Psychosis defeated Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrera, and Blitzkrieg to win the WCW Cruiserweight Championship in a match which went just under 21 minutes. And yes, it was fucking awesome. Absolutely go check this one out. Brian Knobs defeated Hack in a kendo stick versus trash can match. And yes, you heard that correctly. Buff Bagwell defeated Disco Inferno. Billy Kidman and Raven went to a no contest in a Raven's Rules match, so apparently one of Raven's Rules is that you do not need to have any sort of decisive finish. Scott Steiner defeated Scott Norton in a loser-can-no-longer-be-named-Scott match. Well, okay, not really, but that would have made it much more interesting. Kevin Nash defeated Ric Flair, and in your main event, Diamond Dallas Page and Goldberg went to a no contest, so DDP retained his World Heavyweight Championship. Remember last week how I said that WCW pulled the trigger too late on a DDP world title run? Well, they tried to overcompensate for that this week by turning DDP heel as he used brass knuckles against Goldberg during the match. And not just that, but after the match was over, they also turned Kevin Nash face when he came to Goldberg's rescue as DDP was about to put him into a ring post figure four. Well, hey, kudos to them for trying something, I suppose. 
Unfortunately, they also did an angle on this episode of Nitro, which made their biggest star look less than flattering. And, well, for more on that, let's just segue into this week's excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds. Quote, Confusing, convoluted storylines were now becoming the order of the day. The Crazy Flair interview in which he stripped down to his boxers featured the man who was once WCW's top draw, ranting and raving about how he was not only president of WCW, but also president of the entire United States and world heavyweight champion as well. This led to Roddy Piper managing to convince a mental institution to lock Flair up as a madman upon his son David's request. It should also be noted that three days later on Thunder, it was announced that Flair had been released and he was president of WCW again. End quote. So yes, even during a strong show, they still somehow managed to start up a storyline, which is, shall we say, not exactly regarded as a high point in WCW's history, unless you enjoy the visual of an institutionalized Ric Flair dancing around a hospital with other inmates. Although actually, now that I word it that way, that does actually sound kind of entertaining. But anyway, on that note, let's just take it to the raw synopsis. So it probably goes without saying that the funeral segment was the highlight of the show, and you should definitely check that one out. As for the rest of the program, you can pretty much skip it. Maybe check out that Road Dog promo if you're curious to see where the origin of the term puppies came from, but aside from that, I'd go ahead and say that you should skip this episode of Raw. As a go-home show for Backlash, the Rock Austin segment was great, but pretty much everything else was mediocre and didn't really do much to hype up the other matches on the card. I mean, Christ, Big Show and Mankind have a brutal boiler room brawl match scheduled for this Sunday, and their whole angle on Raw revolved around how much they respect each other. The Undertaker is scheduled to face Ken Shamrock at Backlash, but the only interaction between them was that pre-tape promo where Taker tells Shamrock that he knows where Ryan is. Aside from that, The Undertaker mostly spends the rest of the go-home show feuding with his own faction. So yeah, not the best booking going into your post-WrestleMania pay-per-view. Definitely feel free to go ahead and not watch this episode of Raw, which is something I actually haven't said in a while. But before we finish up, here are some notes from this week's issue of The Wrestling Observer. The sad saga of Davy Boy Smith's hospitalization continued this week, but the news is looking better. The staph infection in his spine is responding to antibiotics, so he's feeling better. There's still some worry that he may be wheelchair-bound for the rest of his life, but they're no longer worried about him dying. And on a related note, Eric Bischoff joined an audio show on WCW's website, and he said that firing Davy while he was hospitalized was a tough decision, but he still thinks that he made the right call. However... WCW has been getting so much negative publicity for this that it actually results in Bischoff reaching out to Bulldog several times to try and apologize. I mean, Bischoff has done some sleazy things in his lifetime, but I really think this has to be the worst. I mean, firing a guy while he's on death's door due to something that happened in your company? That's a whole new level of fucked up. And by the way, just for some context, as I'm typing this here in 2019, Eric Bischoff was recently rehired by the WWE to run their SmackDown brand, so clearly Vince doesn't mind Bischoff's sleazy past all that much. Continuing on, there was a rumor this week that the WWF had fired Jim Cornette, but this is actually not true, although it is true that Cornette has a lot of heat with Vince Russo and Kevin Dunn. However, Cornette has actually been tasked with setting up a minor league system in Louisville for future WWF talent, and it will be called 
Ohio Valley Wrestling. Spoiler alert, quite a bit of quality talent will eventually come through that system, including some guys who are still around today in 2019. As of right now, the WWF's SmackDown show at the end of the month is slated to just be a one-time special, but there's a chance it'll turn into a weekly show if the ratings for it are successful. Hmm, I guess we'll see. And also, yes, as I mentioned before, the pilot episode of SmackDown will get its own bonus episode on this podcast with a very special guest, so stay tuned. Regarding Degeneration X, Dave Meltzer reports that there's talk of adding some new members to the group, specifically the Hardy Boys. And I have to ask, would that have worked if it had happened? I don't think it would have if Matt and Jeff were being tasked with cutting promos and making dick jokes every week, but alas, I don't think we'll ever find out. Regarding the recent WWF house show in Calgary, a very interesting name was backstage, Bret Hart. However, Meltzer says not to read anything into that because Brett was simply visiting friends, and he knew Vince McMahon wouldn't be there because he doesn't travel for house shows. Brett actually did manage to speak with Earl Hebner for a bit, though, and it was supposedly cordial. Brett asked Earl about his health since Hebner had suffered an aneurysm last year. Pretty positive overall, but let's just say pretty soon there will be zero chance of Brett stopping by a WWF event for quite some time. Goldberg did an interview this week where he said that he got the idea for his character by watching tapes of UFC fights, and he's surprised no one else had thought of it. And then, in a retroactively amusing moment, he said that there is no way he'll still be wrestling by the time he's 38 years old. For those scoring at home, here in the present day, Goldberg just wrestled a match against The Undertaker at Super Showdown in Saudi Arabia at the age of 52. Uh Uh-huh. And finally, as I mentioned on the previous episode of this podcast, the Blue Meanie was fired from the WWF last week, but things took an interesting turn this week. Why? Because a group of internet fans created a website called Save the Meanie, and it actually worked. The WWF took notice of it, and they decided to bring him back. And funny enough, I actually found an article online which was written on April 23rd, 1999 in The Standard Times, a newspaper based out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, of all places. Here is a quick excerpt of that. Quote, The WWF had notified several lower-tier wrestlers that their contacts would be terminated within the next few months. When that news leaked on the internet last week, a group of fans established a Save the Meanie website. The site has received more than 3,000 hits since its inception last weekend, a number that didn't escape WWF officials who closely monitor the popularity of performers on the internet. The meanie, real name Brian Heffron, was told Tuesday night that he would retain his job as Goldust Lackey. This is wild, Heffron told the Denver Rocky Mountain News in a telephone interview. When I came home, my mailbox was full. I couldn't believe it. Maybe it's because I always try to keep a good rapport with my online friends. I've always been internet-friendly and keep in touch with the fans. I know what it's like to be a fan. I always wanted to have access to talk to somebody in the business. Back when I was a kid, I didn't have that. End quote. So yes, you heard that correctly. The WWF was so impressed by the fact that the Save the Meanie website got 3,000 hits in the span of about seven days that they immediately hired him back. 3,000 hits. You know, 1999 wasn't that long ago, but when it comes to the internet, it was practically light years ago. Good lord. Also, should we consider the Blue Meanie to be a pioneer for this new internet age? 
I mean, he talks about being internet friendly and keeping in touch with his fans back in 1999. And hey, these days we have Twitter, where wrestlers are all over that fucker interacting with fans. So perhaps the Blue Meanie was on the cutting edge. We're playing checkers, while the blue-haired guy in the jean shorts and cut-off t-shirt is playing chess, folks. And we all just have to deal with that. And so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugebex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or shit, as I mentioned earlier, just leave us a five-star review on iTunes without writing a review, because that's great too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip from Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast, where he talks about, what else, running over the rocks Lincoln Continental with his monster truck. So enjoy that, and I will catch you next time. Let me tell you the story about what happened there. I got the Monday Night Raw. Can't remember where it was. Y'all probably do. And Vince tells me the, uh, the scenario. You're going to run over the Rock's Lincoln Town car with a monster truck. Well, hell, I didn't know how to drive a monster truck. Well, there I was in the parking lot driving the Austin 316 monster truck, which was uh, supplied by Calvin Carrington. It was a badass Dodge with a methanol alcohol motor, about 1,800 horsepower. And there was the Rock's Lincoln Town Car, which I'm sure he never saw. But it was gold, and it was brand new. And Vince had had someone buy that thing off the damn showroom lot that day. That was a real deal McCoy, brand new Lincoln Town Car for a shoot. I don't know, back in the day, they was probably going to run 30 grand. So that's a lot of damn money. So anyway, I learned how to drive the monster truck in about 15, 20 minutes out in the parking lot. And that's the thing about me. I can drive anything in about 15 minutes. Don't give a shit what it is, whether it's in the air or the, the water or the land, I can drive it. So there we are. We go live, live TV, and I get my cue, and I start running up and down that damn Lincoln Town car, crushing the shit out of it. And then it's going to be a deal where I drive the truck into the arena. So I go into the back door of the arena, and this wasn't all the elaborate setups that they have these days. I was in a holding room with a couple of curtains in front of me, and some of the people could see me back there, and that monster truck was loud as fuck. And that's 1,800-horsepower motor churning out exhaust fumes. I'm in this small room, and they shut the door behind me. So it was about a three-minute commercial break. So the whole time the people back home are watching commercials, I'm in a room inside a truck, breathing methanol alcohol fumes. I could barely breathe. I was just begging for the uh, show to come back on the air so I could charge out in the audience and get a breath of fresh air. So if I look drunk, it's because my eyes were redder than fuck from breathing all those exhaust fumes. Motherfucker, I was going to crash the gate doing 98 and just go and take my own cue and haul ass into the arena if they hadn't cued me when they did. I was about to die. So anyway, I go out there, and they used to have that carpet rolled out all the way to the uh, ring. And one of the camera guys was standing on that carpet, and I gassed that motor and that big-ass monster truck, four-wheel drive, heavy as fuck, 1,800 horsepower, yanked the carpet right underneath one of the camera guys. And he goes flying, and you can see his viewfinder just goes flying up in the air. 
and I was in there laughing my ass off, and luckily he wasn't hurt. But anyway, that's the story. That's the setup. That's how it happened. I learned to drive a monster truck in 15 minutes. I crushed a $30,000 car. I damn near died breathing truck fumes, and it was a fun day at the office.